Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Lori Boyer. I introduce my guest here today, Eric Sarf. He is president of Murray Wise and Associates based in Champaign, Illinois. Eric, can you tell us more about the company and what you do? Sure. Murray Wise Associates uh, spun off of the Westchester Group. Murray himself founded Westchester Group back in the uh, the 80s and grew that into what it was. Then he spun off Murray Wise Associates about 12 years ago. We are a national farm brokerage auction and farm management company. We do sales really all over the country. And same thing with management. We've managed farms basically from coast to coast and have experience in a lot of different regions. And our specialty is really taking a large property and dividing it up at auction and selling that in parcels to maximize dollars. As we start our conversation here today, if we need to step back and talk about some other things leading up to this question, that is totally fine because it is a big question. And that is, how is agricultural land valued? You know, it's the kind of the, the old saying, location, location, location. I mean, that always kind of is the main factor. In our industry, that means soil types is one of the main factors. And again, that kind of comes back to where it's located. I'll use Illinois for an example. The higher quality soils, that's going to obviously sell for a higher price because that means those farms will produce higher yields, corn and soybeans which, you know, means that we'll rent more money from a, from a tenant, which allows buyers to, you know, get more rent, which means they'll pay a higher price. You know, if it's a farmer owner, uh, they can get higher yields and, and get more revenue off that farm and allows them to buy or pay more for that farm as well. So really having the higher quality soils is kind of step one. That's kind of your foundation. Some other factors that come into play, drainage. If a farm's well-drained or has a tile system in place, that will add value to a farm. Also, uh, you know, the fertility on the property, you know, has it been maintained properly and will allow higher yields as well. Eric, how do you get that information? So typically, if, if we're working with a, a client, um, a lot of that stuff we can we can source ourselves, you know, through various uh, websites or, and software that subscriptions that we have. You can get the soil types, fertility that would have to come from, you know, soil tests would come either from the, the current farmer on the property or if it's a different party, the owner of the property would know that as well. And then the same thing with drainage, some of that you can source publicly and some would have to come from either the person farming the property or the owner. Those are different people. But we try to source as much as we can from public sources to uh, keep our clients' costs down. What about region? Does that come into play when you're determining the value of agland? It does. Every region's different. You know, it, even though they may produce similar yields, if you get into, for example, Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, you may get uh, similar yields as you would on a Midwest property, but the prices are lower and also the rents are lower. And a lot of that's just a factor of demand. Uh, there's less farmers or less buyers in those regions, which kind of suppresses prices a little bit. You know, if you get into High Plains, uh, Eastern Colorado, I mean, they're growing while they are growing corn, they're also growing wheat and other crops. Yields are less, which again, yield less yields means less demand and, and lower prices. So really, it comes back to location and where the property is to determine what the price is. And then when you talked about soil types, I'm wondering, do government type programs filter into this? If they have any of their land enrolled in those programs, does that make a difference? It can, especially if it's a lower quality or marginal ground. You know, even properties that have high quality soils, you know, you may have waterways on the property or areas around the edges of the property that might qualify for government programs like a filter strip or something like that. So anytime you can take ground that's marginal and may not be, you know, as productive from a crop standpoint and put it into a government program that would help the environment and helps erosion, but also is an income stream for the farmer and the landowner, that's going to add value. 
This might be a question for a farm service agency person, but you might know the answer. If the land is already enrolled in an FSA program, does it stay enrolled if it is sold to someone else? Ultimately, that would be an FSA question. But yeah, in most cases, that's correct. You know, that contract does transfer. And then if it's taken out, you know, if you buy a farm or just take it out yourself, there are some penalties both to you and to the prior person that signed that contract. So uh, typically it would transfer closing and, and maintain, uh, stay in place. Eric, going back to soil type, whether it's pasture land or cropland versus feedlots and dairies, does it still matter if it's under a livestock operation? It does factor into price. Every piece of land has its highest and best use. And, uh, you know, there's certain areas of the country where, as you mentioned, pasture is the highest and best use for cattle or a feed yard. And uh, while those definitely add value, that ground will be worth less than something that, you know, you can grow uh, a commodity on that you can sell for a higher price. So what it's being used for is affects the value. Another question I have for you is how are appraisals done on agricultural land versus other types of land and non-agricultural land? Typically, the recent sales comparable type method is what drives the uh, the ship there in terms of value. They'll look at, you know, try to find the most recent comparable sales in the area, make the necessary changes for, you know, this farm may have been slightly higher productivity of a soil, may have had a, a waterway or you know, make those adjustments, but typically they're going to first look at the other sales in the area, which will kind of help determine what the appraisal comes out to. Which leads right into a follow-up question. So when we're buying a house, we look at comps, we look at the banking situation, but when it comes to ag land, what else do you look at? Comparable sales are really is the first thing that we look at. And, you know, for example, in Illinois, we have what we call the productivity index, which is an index ranking of all the soil types. It was created for assessment purposes for taxes. You know, the highest on the index get taxed the highest. And so that's an easy way to kind of compare soil types, look at what they call the PI number of that property. So that's, you know, kind of the first step is you try to find, you know, similar type soil types that are going to, if a farm sold for 15,000 acre, you want to compare that. If your farm is a similar type soil type, you want to use that as a comparable sale. So that's kind of the first step is trying to find soil types that are similar to the farm you're looking at. If not, then you can make adjustments. Once you get to that point, you can kind of get to that next level, you know, look at percentage that is farmed, you know, is, is one farm, you know, part timber, part tillable. Is it all tillable? Trying to get that mix figured out. And then, uh, you know, you can look at factors like, is there a drainage tile on the farm? Is there a waterway on the farm or a ditch that may affect value? So trying to get a, as much of an apples to apples comparison as you can. Does each state have its own PI values? Some states do. Like Iowa, for example, has what they call the Corn Suitability Rating Index, CSR2. Other states have similar indexes. If they don't, they fall under a, a national, it's the NCCPI index is what they call it. So it's kind of a mixed bag on some states have it and some states don't. And perhaps you've already kind of answered this, but just to be clear. So however a piece of land is currently being used, so if it is currently being used for pasture, or maybe it's currently under wheat, or maybe it's currently being used as a feedlot, is that what it's actually valued on for the sake of the current appraisal? Typically, yes. I think they will. And again, we don't appraise farms, so I don't want to speak for an appraiser, but they typically try to look at what's the highest and best use. Now, again, there are certain cases or maybe a higher use. Majority of the time, it's what's being used for is the highest and best use. And that's kind of what they'll base their appraisal off of. Eric, what are some outside factors that go into determining the value of ag land? 
Sure. Um, you know, inflation, that's the biggest one we've seen recently. You know, historically, farmland has been an inflation hedge for many investors for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, the underlying commodities that are produced on the farm typically get pulled up in times of inflation as we are now. You know, we've seen higher corn and bean prices in this inflationary period. At the same time, it's something that it's a hard asset that will appreciate in value during times of inflation as well which is why historically savvy investors have always wanted to have farmland in their portfolio to hedge against inflation. Interest rates are another timely topic and something that definitely influences our market. You know, we've seen interest rates go from virtually zero to, you know, way more than they were, you know, a couple of years ago. You know, that hasn't affected our market as much as I thought it might. There's still a lot of cash buyers, especially farmers as cash buyers in the market. For investors that are looking to buy and need a certain return back on their investment, interest rates definitely factor in there because it's a, it's a low cap rate year-to-year investment anyway. So if you factor in higher interest rates, it's really hard for investors to jump into the market with, with higher interest rates. What about global things that are going on, Eric? Does that factor into determining ag land values here in the U.S.? I'm thinking things like crop imports and exports or even the war between Russia and Ukraine. It's more of an indirect influence where the value of farmland always comes back to commodity prices. And so, you know, what, you know, is being exported in other countries or, you know, international conflicts that affect price of grain will ultimately filter down to land values here. But it's it's because of, of commodity prices is what it comes back to. How do structures fit into valuing ag land? And I'm thinking of things like older buildings that you may not be able to use anymore because they're not sound versus newer structures that are on your property? It's really a case-by-case basis. Um, you know, the, as you mentioned, there are a lot of barns out there on farms that were built 50, 100 years ago that, to be honest, add zero value now. And it, it could be a negative value because you're still paying taxes on that structure. And, you know, with the size of farm equipment these days, and really the, we don't have as near as much livestock as we used to in at least in the Midwest, you know, you're paying taxes on a structure that you really can't use. We've seen a lot of those facilities being torn down just to save taxes and liability costs too, because you never know who can trespass and get hurt on your property and there's a liability issue there. You know, if you get into structures like grain bins, irrigation center pivots, things like that, that's definitely a value add on properties that could use that. Grain storage is a very efficient way for farmers to uh, spend some money and take advantage of when grain prices rise and they'll have the grain in storage they can sell. We see a lot of both farmland owner clients and tenant clients that put up grain storage. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about a person potentially getting hurt or what that means Mm -hmm. for new equipment storage. You're absolutely right. So that brings up a question. On the flip side, I would assume, Eric, that properties that have newer buildings with newer materials and are big enough to fit in agricultural equipment these days would bring more value. Yeah, they definitely have the potential to. And it all comes back to the buyers, you know, who the buyer is. For a farm buyer, you know, it's a direct benefit to them. And they'll add to that. If it's an investor buyer, they've got to get rent on that property or on that facility. But assuming the farmer tenant will add additional rent on for that facility, it definitely has a way to add value. Does residential on farm property add value? Not typically as much. You know, in certain cases, you know, maybe a farmer has a hired hand type employee that that could be in there. But although typically investors would prefer, ones we work with would prefer to buy a farm with, if there is a house, they prefer to have the house stay on it because you kind of control it, know who's going to be in it, where if you sell that house off, then you lose control of that little five acres or whatever the house sits on and you never know what it could turn into down the road. 
Eric, it has been in the news quite a bit about foreign buyers and foreign investors in agricultural land in the United States. What are you seeing and hearing and what are your comments on that? And it's definitely a, an active topic. You know, it's one of those things I think probably gets more press than it actually is a day-to-day occurrence. I mean, both investment buyers and foreign buyers, I mean, there's such a small percentage of overall ownership that it's not a major factor. I mean, I'm not saying there's not international buyers out there and uh, investment buyers, but on a day-to-day basis, if we have an auction and we have 30 to 40 registered bidders, a couple might be institutional type bidders. Typically, we don't have any international type foreign bidder. So it's a very small subset of people that are buying ground. And in certain states, if you get into like Iowa or Minnesota, don't allow foreign ownership or corporate ownership. So there are some restrictions there. Actual what's going on in the countryside, it's pretty low compared to the press that it really makes. Since we are on the topic of policy, Eric, I have to ask, with all the conversation going on right now about waters of the U.S. rule and what its implications are for landowners, I'm sure that that is something you have to follow, especially specializing in agricultural land. Yeah, the waters of the U.S. is something that we've actually done a number of uh article in our quarterly newsletter about, because as you said, it can affect what farmers can and can't do on the property and which kind of comes back to values as well. If there are certain restrictions on the property that can have an effect on value. So yeah, it's definitely something that we monitor. It's it's been interesting to watch the kind of the ups and downs of that legislation as, you know, we've changed administrations and what, you know, we've been now since the third administration that's kind of been dealing with this issue and seeing how it's kind of gone back and forth. But our typical stance is farmers are very environmental conscious from the get-go because, I mean, it's their livelihood. You know, they're not out there ruining the environment. They're there to protect the environment because it's in their best interest from uh, both, you know, they live in the countryside and they also benefit from the farm. So 99% of the time, the farmer themselves wants to do the best for the environment as well. What would be some suggestions you have for landowners that would make their land more valuable? In the Midwest, especially, I mean, there are a number of things you can do. Biggest returns you can have is drainage tile to look at that. You know, it can be somewhat costly up front, but it adds immediate yield impact to your farm, which either adds more bushels for rent or, you know, it adds value to the farm. We talked about grain bins. Those kind of structures add value. There may be, as we said, like a CRP filter strip on a waterway, things like that. You can look to add value as well and also get an income stream back from that program. Eric, I'm curious, what are some of the overall changes you've seen with regards to trends and things happening when it comes to agricultural real estate transactions? We've definitely seen more consolidation on the farmer side. You know, I've been doing this for a little over 20 years now, and, and uh, there's still obviously a lot of farmers out there, but there's less now than uh, than there were 20 years ago and even longer than that when I was growing up on the countryside. And when I was young, you know, my dad farmed a couple thousand acres, and that was a big, big deal back in the in the 90s. And anymore, that's that's pretty small time. So seeing how consolidation of farms and farm operations, while they're still family farms, they're just bigger operations. Production, productivity, again, corn bushels now, yields, I mean, they're 250 bushels per acre, which that's unfathomable 20 years ago or even five years ago when we were closer to 200. So just seeing the increased productivity in the fields, the sophistication of the buyers is is definitely increased as well. And what do you see for the rest of 2023 and maybe early into 2024? What are you kind of predicting, again, based on your experience and the trends that you have seen? I think if commodity prices stay where they've been, which nobody knows for sure, but it sounds like we're probably going to see strong commodity prices through the end of the year and into 24. 
I think we'll continue to see strong demand for farmland. We saw prices start to moderate a little bit towards the end of last year, and that, but demand has stayed strong. Uh, I think part of the moderation of prices is that we went up so quickly, so fast, and you know, 20 and 21, that it had to cool off a little bit, but it's still staying very strong and demand strong. I think we'll see that through the end of this year and into next year as we don't see any crazy worldwide changes. I think we'll see a continued strong demand for farmland. What about the kinds of people that are buying farmland? Is it more individuals? Is it more companies? Is it a little both? It's a little bit of everything. The strongest market has always been farmers, and that continues to be the case. You know, they make up, depending on the the market, you know, definitely the majority of buyers. Family offices and, and individual investors, high net worth investors, those are definitely one of the stronger buyer groups as well. It goes back to the inflation hedge and a way to kind of transfer wealth. That's always been a preferred method. And then the other group is more the institutional type investors, pension funds, hedge funds, those kind of groups. Those are out there as well. Again, they're a little more sensitive to returns. So interest rates affect them a little bit more than some others. But every buyer group is still looking to buy farm ground. It's still an asset that people want to have in their portfolio. Eric, with USDA really pushing to get more services out to minorities and what they call underserved people, are you seeing more of those types of folks that are getting involved in purchasing farmland? I'd like to see more of those type of buyers. You know, I think that's great for the industry. There's a high barrier to get into farming, whether you're buying or farming with, you know, the cost of farmland, rents, equipment. It's just a hard industry to start from scratch in. That's why a lot of farmers are multiple generations getting into the business. I know there's some programs out there to help first-time farmers, you know, purchase a farm, operating loans, those types of things. So I'd love to see more underserved uh, people get into the industry, and uh, hopefully that that's the case. What are some of the common questions that you get asked? Yeah, for us, a lot of times it's, what's the market in general? And that could be a loaded question because there's a lot of different markets. Yeah, a lot of people just want to know generally what farms are selling for, what are cash rents going for. And so we try to stay up on uh, current trends and, and and numbers wherever they're at, whether it's in central Illinois or North Carolina or Colorado or wherever they're at. We like to know kind of what what's selling and where it's at and, and uh, what rents are going for. Eric, is there a certain time of the year that farmland sells better than other times of the year? Historically, yes. Uh, that's changed a little bit recently, but historically, most farms have sold kind of that after harvest and before planting season. So it's kind of wrapping up about this time of year. I feel like the last couple of years, there's been such a demand for farmland that more people have put their farms on the market in the summertime. But, you know, we still see the majority of farms selling kind of in that October to April timeframe. Are there any common mistakes that people make when getting ready to sell their land? I think not doing their homework. I think it's always wise, to, and obviously I'm promoting ourselves, but to talk to a professional, whether that's me or someone else, make sure you understand what the market is. You know, someone may have heard what prices were a couple of years ago and not realize how much they've gone up and not know what the current market is. So I think just talking to a professional, whether that's a broker, an appraiser, you know, an ag lender, someone that has their finger on the pulse of the market and can help kind of guide you to uh, what's a good current market price and can help you with the transaction is key. Another question I have for you, Eric, a lot of farms are designated as centennial farms or they have unique things on the farms. Maybe there's historical value. Maybe there's Indian artifacts or maybe a wagon trail went through there. Does that increase the value of farmland? There are certain buyers that it does. And I come from a centennial farm. My family still farms the same farm for 150 years that we've been on. So it, 
definitely matters. And it's more for the local buyers. It definitely, it matters. I mean, that would be always known as the, you know, the Smith farm or, or whatever kind of thing. And, and some buyers would really enjoy the backstory to a farm. On the flip side, there's some buyers that, you know, again, they're looking kind of what's the rent on that property, what's the income stream and what kind of return can I get? And it's not as much of a factor. So it depends on who the buyer is, how much of a premium they put on that property. An emerging discussion here, Eric, on rural lands is installing things for renewable sources of energy like solar panels or like wind turbines. What kind of effect does that have on farmland values? Typically more. We've seen a lot here in the Midwest. You know, wind is is a very big development in Illinois for sure. Solar, it's the same way we've had a lot of solar developments recently. Yeah, it's a case where it's it kind of comes back to the income. So it'll add value. A wind turbine would add value because it adds more revenue to the property and buyers put a premium on that. There are two different kind of animals because with a wind turbine, you can still farm the property. With solar, you typically can't, but you're also going to get more revenue across the board for solar because it's taking up the entire property. But yes, definitely in general adds value to the property to have solar and wind. What about the value of properties that don't have renewable resources installed on them, especially when they're butted up to properties that do? They typically sell for market value. They're not going to have that premium. Some neighboring properties may still have a small easement with the wind turbine company just for kind of they call a good neighbor type lease. Typically, they'll sell for whatever that underlying soil type is worth versus, you know, having the premium for the solar or the wind. Eric, what else would you like to mention or talk about here today that I haven't asked about? I think the main thing from our standpoint is we work all over the country on sales, farm management. We've helped many clients kind of build portfolios out and tailor that to them. And every investor kind of wants uh, something a little bit different. It's not always return-based. It could be kind of a blended portfolio. So from our perspective, we'd love to help buyers do that. And if we could be of any assistance, we'd love to do it. Thank you to my guests for joining me here today, Eric Sarf, president of Murray Wise & Associates. For Successful Farming, I'm Lori Boyer.